We're now joined live in the studio by Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Stephanie DiNardo. Stephanie, earlier today, President Obama addressed the country's immigration issues with plans for reform. Yes, Nikkel, the times are changing for immigrants in the United States as President Obama has made it clear today that, quote, now's the time for immigration reform. Yesterday, eight U.S. senators, including Florida Senator Mark Rubio, proposed legislation that would increase the border, that would secure the border, allow more guest workers, require tougher verification measures by employers, and create a path to citizenship for 11 million illegal immigrants already in the country. Richard McMaster, he's a member of the organization Immigration Through the Lens of Faith, says that most people he knows are excited about the new focused attention on immigration issues, particularly the new proposals to provide a pathway to citizenship. Most people who've been working in this field have been very enthusiastic, primarily because it's the first step in getting at the issue of immigration reform. President Bush tried to do some of this early in his time and got nowhere. So we're hoping that with bipartisan support, something can be done now. Along with helping current undocumented immigrants in the U.S. achieve citizenship, Candy Herrera, a University of Florida graduate student involved with the Interfaith Alliance for Immigrant Justice, says that the bill could also have the potential impact of gaining more votes for Republicans in future congressional elections. It's an attempt uh, to um, kind of provide a pathway uh, and also for uh, Republicans to garner Latino support in the United States. Um, it's a very thinly veiled attempt, but it doesn't matter as long as um, immigration reform with a, pathway, with a pathway to citizenship is occurring, um, it doesn't matter what their motivations are. Um, ultimately, if it's to benefit folks who are here who are undocumented, um, all the better. While the nonpartisan bill will help increase the number of visas available to high-skilled immigrant workers, Dr. Eric Castillo, National Outreach Chair at Campaign for an American Dream, says that the bill doesn't necessarily consider the human aspect of immigration, that it focuses primarily on the legal implications and deportations. My, my frustration with that is that it, it doesn't really talk about you know, the humanity of immigrants. It talks about enforcement. It talks about spending. It talks about military. What I think needs to happen is we need to focus on moratorium of uh, deportations, which means we just do an immediate stop of all deportations. So we can figure out who's in the country and find out like, what's their story and are they high priority or are they low risk for deportation. One of the significant benefits of the bill for Castillo is that it would allow for younger people to achieve citizenship and remain in the United States to go to college and graduate school. Thus, they can remain in the U.S. to look for a job and generate income for themselves and the national and Florida economy. Given the opportunity for migrants and immigrants in this country to gain access to a permanent legal pathway to citizenship, I mean, it would boost and bolster our economy significantly by billions of dollars each year allowing them access to, one, colleges and universities across the country and pay in-state tuition and get state and federal aid, but also bolster the amount of education that increased our ranking in, a, in an entire world of, in terms of how we are educating the people of this country. We have some really wonderful people that are contributing already, but we keep creating bills that stifle their progress and then in turn stifle our country's progress. While focusing on possible benefits to students and migrant workers alike, Castillo emphasizes the importance of making this bill and Obama's plan for immigration reform focus on the people, not just on piecemeal ways to address multiple issues in multiple bills. We never talk about this comprehensively, and so like if we keep approaching it piecemeal, we're always going to figure out, oh, there's another population that we forgot about. We're going to create another bill that's going to overlap, or it's going to compete, or it's going to conflict. And so 
I think that if, if we approach this from a people-centered perspective, understanding what are the needs of this country and how then the migrants historically felt these, the need for us. I think that's a great way of looking at that. Instead of thinking, well, what's the cap and how many people we should let, how many Mexicans do we let in, how many Filipinos do we let in? We're, you know, not creating caps, but creating opportunities. Like Castillo, McMaster describes the importance of focusing on the undocumented individuals and families who are in the United States because in past events, families have been split up if a member of the family is found without documentation and is deported. A woman who had several children who had been living here in Gainesville for a number of years who was taken back, actually she went back to her native country for her uh, Medicare, medical treatment and then expected she'd just take the plane home again. I mean, she had a house, she had children, and they said, sorry, you can't come back. McMaster predicts that the bill will be presented near August, and both he and Castillo are hopeful that Obama's plans for immigration reform and the nonpartisan bill will help secure the border as well as provide a clearer path to U.S. citizenship for undocumented immigrants. Thanks, Stephanie. Florida's new Democratic Party chair says grassroots organization is how the party will unseat Governor Rick Scott in the 2014 gubernatorial election. Regan McCarthy reports Allison Tant, a big fundraiser for President Barack Obama, will take the helm of the Florida Democratic Party. The Florida Democratic Party's new leader, Allison Tant, says members of her party are energized from last year's presidential election. And she says her plan is to keep that momentum going into 2014. And Tabitha Frazier with the Leon County Democratic Party says that shouldn't be a problem. I have no doubt that two years from now things will be different. We are energized and we are ready to go. Outgoing Democratic Party Chair Rod Smith, who did not seek another term, says he feels confident he's leaving the party in good hands. He says he looks forward to Democrats working together to beat Scott. Meanwhile, Lenny Curry will stay on as the chairman of the Republican Party of Florida. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Regan McCarthy. Florida consumers are showing little change in economic outlook from the past two months. According to a University of Florida report released earlier today, consumer confidence in the Sunshine State has seen a slight dip from that of last December. Director of the Bureau of Economic and Business Research Chris McCarty says consumer confidence has flatlined and one major factor contributing to this, the, the daunting fiscal cliff. Well, it's down uh, one point from December and December was revised uh, up a point. Uh, so it's effectively uh, pretty flat uh, since the elections. So there was um, a very large job, uh, drop in consumer confidence uh, after the elections. Um, that was pretty much predicted. Uh, and then I think um, one thing that sort of kept things uh, down has been uh, all this news about the fiscal cliff. Um, now that has been dealt with at least in part, uh, but not entirely. There have been no changes to Social Security and Medicare, which McCarty says is reflected in an increase in confidence among seniors by three points. However, with sequestration still on the horizon, consumer confidence overall is looking down. Some folks are actually reasonably happy. I think seniors are happy that in that uh, fiscal cliff discussion, Medicare and Social Security were uh, pretty much kept uh, intact. There were really no changes. Um, but there is still the issue of sequestration out there. Uh, that's coming up in March. 
And so I think that's keeping uh, consumer confidence uh, down uh, somewhat. Congress repealed the payroll tax cut, which will result in a change in withholding from 4.2 to 6.2 percent. McCarty says although it may take Floridians a while to notice this in their paychecks, it will directly impact the state's consumer confidence. This does affect Floridians. I think Floridians see that uh, with the discussions in January that some things were uh, dealt with, um, but other things not. So one thing that's going to impact consumers uh, that they're really going to start noticing is the payroll tax cut holiday uh, that was essentially a stimulus that was allowed to expire. So they're going to start seeing uh, some money pulled from their paychecks, uh, with, uh, higher withholding rates, and that probably is going to be noticeable in January. And so we'll probably see that in uh, February's consumer confidence. The stock market has hit a post-recession high, while the housing market continues to improve as well. McCarty says these positives are particularly impacted, are particularly impacting Florida, allowing for the stability in consumer confidence. The stock market being up and the housing market being up, those are both big positives for uh, consumers, particularly in Florida. Florida was um, hit quite hard, uh, harder than most states in terms of the, the loss in value of housing. So housing values have actually improved. Again, they're nothing like they were at the peak uh, right bef uh, before the recession, uh, but they're much better. So that certainly is helping to keep consumer confidence up. Uh, unemployment has actually been declining. Uh, again, there's some debate about the source of that, uh, but there's no doubt that we're better off than we were um, uh, uh, right after the recession began. Uh, so again, uh, I think some of the economic indicators are actually quite good. That's being reflected in uh, consumer confidence being uh, sort of maintaining this uh, level uh, currently. However, McCarty says the negatives will most likely outweigh the positives, when, which will cause yet an even lower dip in consumer confidence within the coming month. My expectation is that it's probably going to go down a little bit in February uh, as people start seeing... Uh, uh, again, the higher withholding rate uh, from the uh, payroll tax holiday uh, expiring. And then as we get a little bit closer to March 1st, uh, March 1st is the new date uh, for sequestration, and um, it doesn't appear that there's going to be any deal there, uh, at least so far. So that certainly could uh, hit certain areas of Florida uh, relatively hard. McCarty adds most people like the economy are treading the waters to see what will happen. America felt it was the brunt of North Korea's threats to launch a nuclear weapon, but South Korea is currently feeling the heat as well. After threats to harm their neighboring country, North Korea has been on a rampant parade of threats, evoking the United Nations to start getting involved. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Leah Harding spoke with a political expert regarding North Korea and what the next political steps on both ends will likely be. Not only are rumors and threats flying around, so are the potential risks that missiles will be too. After North Korea said it would carry out a new nuclear test and launch long-range missiles at the U.S. last week, talk about what would be done to stop them has all but ceased. The possibility that North Korea is threatening a third nuclear test, previous ones occurring in 2006 and 2009, are angering the United Nations and neighboring China, who has threatened to end their financial support for North Korea.
David Siegel, associate professor for political science at Florida State University, said that the U.S. government shouldn't only be worried about missiles being launched at the U.S., but also need to be proactive in monitoring whose hands they may fall into. There's even more of a danger for um, not necessarily a missile from North Korea, but a, a sold missile or sold um, technology to other, other um, rogue actors. Other rogue actors, like terrorist groups, are unstable countries. Siegel warns that if weapons are sold, even stronger weapons could replace them. If they could acquire the resources, could, you know, and if the technology improves sufficiently much on the North Korean side, they could acquire some level of um, you know, weapons of mass destruction. The man at the heart of North Korea's dictatorship pushing for the development of weapons of mass destruction is Kim Jong-un. Siegel says Un is in a rat's race to stay in power. How he does it is what Siegel thinks is fueling the nuclear production within his country. I mean, North Korea's a dictatorship, so the dictator, you know, Kim Jong-un, is, um, I mean, he relies upon his elite to, to support him. And given that his primary interest is, is in keeping his power, he has to keep his elite happy. And that requires resources by and large and to get resources he needs to have something to acquire resources with and you see this all across the world and usually the resources are garnered by some kind of you know oil or some other other natural resource they can sell because north korea has already acquired nuclear weapons there is less that the u.s government can do to stop it from progressing siegel says the u.s can try to block the flow of illegal materials funding the country's nuclear program but that the process feared most by the u.s has largely already begun once the country gets nuclear arms it becomes the amount you can the amount of pressure you can put on them becomes lessened right there's a lot i mean the nuclear deterrent is there for a reason and if they have the nuclear deterrent you're less likely to go and invade the country and um, stop them from having that. The pressure the U.S. can place on North Korea may be weakening, but this has given the U.S. more motives to keep nuclear-seeking countries like Iran from following suit. Because Iran does not yet have nuclear programs running, outside governments can place pressure on the interior of the country to keep the enriched uranium from turning into deadly weapons. In Iran's case, they're still developing that, and there's a window in which Pensy can be stopped, and that's, I think, why the pressure's been on and the tension's been on Iran right now to try to stop them in this window, and then different observers differ on when the window is that we can actually stop them or if it's too late already or so on. Um, so I think the window of attention right now is on Iran for that reason. As North Korea already has them. They've established nuclear power, so we have limited ability to, to counter that. If there is such a threat of nuclear weapons, Siegel says even an invasion on the country could put the U.S. in an even worse situation than what they're arguably already in. Of the countries in the world that have capabilities of this kind of um, violence, I would imagine they'd be one of the least likely to resist actually launching something um, if we were to actually invade in force. The fear the U.S. has of blocking North Korea's resources, Siegel says, is proof that this is a terrorist operation. What the U.S. shouldn't do, Siegel repeatedly said, is invade North Korea. The unknown of what the reaction to U.S. troops could be, Siegel hopes, will be enough to keep the U.S. away. The idea would be to have actually you know, some kind of mass you know, insurrection, but that's very unlikely. I mean, if we could shut off all aid to, to North Korea, it's possible that the government might collapse, but it also might, in desperation, sell all of its nuclear technology to the highest bidder. <laughs> so it's, it's just an unpleasant situation. It's unclear how to go forward with any kind of productive outcome. 
The window to cave in North Korea's nuclear program may have ended, but the fight over the global nuclear upper hand seems to be anything but over. Siegel says the fact that the U.S. is a democracy makes its citizens easy prey for terrorist operations and threats. Speaking on such threats, U.S. Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta said on Thursday that North Korea has the capability to conduct these tests, but that the United States is fully prepared in case they do. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Leah Harding. A state Senate panel is preparing a bill that would overhaul the Road to Independence program for youth aging out of foster care. It's aimed at giving foster parents more leeway to make decisions. Alan Abramowitz is the state statewide director of the Guardian Adelitum program. He says state officials have been too cautious about allowing foster youth to live normal lives. What we've changed it to is giving the caregiver, the person who's parenting them and cares them and actually knows the child, not bureaucrats in a back room with lawyers, the actual person that we've said are licensed and can have this child 24 hours a day and make all the decisions that that person can make normalcy decisions. The bill would also extend the independent living program to age 21 for teens who choose not to age out at 13, at 18 rather. When Florida sued to overturn the Affordable Care Act, lawmakers targeted a piece of the act that would have forced Florida to make Medicaid available to more than a million uninsured Floridians. The Supreme Court upheld most of the act, but it made Medicaid expansion optional. Now some Florida lawmakers who originally opposed Medicaid expansion are seriously considering that option. A recent poll showed that nearly two-thirds of Floridians are in favor of expanding Medicaid. Research from Georgetown University's Health Policy Institute and the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund suggests Medicaid expansion could save Florida up to $100 million a year in health costs. State Senator Renee Garcia, a Republican from Hialeah, was in Miami on Monday for a legislative forum on Medicaid expansion. Garcia spoke with WLRN health reporter Sammy Mack about what's changing his mind. How do you feel about Medicaid expansion now? Well, I think there's still some unanswered questions on how it really is going to affect the state and, and our finances of the state. But I can say that I've moved from a position where I was totally against it to a position that I would consider it and think about it. What changed your mind? From the onset, the information that we were getting back was that the federal government was going to fund this for X amount of years and then pull out after 2020. Uh, now we hear that after 2020, it, it, it is included. The funding will be included. Just 90, 90% of it will be included. 10% will be up to the state. We just recently found out the state had been using estimates that it was going to cost about $26 billion. But then it came back that their formula wasn't based on a split that the feds would put up 90% of the money and the state would have to put up 10%. And now that estimate has been recalibrated to about $3 billion. And we just heard that... Medicaid expansion may even save up to $100 million a year in Florida. Where do you go with that information? How does that change the conversation? It, it depends where the information is coming from or where the numbers are coming from as well. Um, I would tend to disagree that it will save $100 million. Yes, there is going to be some programs that because of the expansion uh, could be some potential cost savings to the state. You have to remember that one-third of our budget right now goes to health care. The more money that goes into healthcare, that means it's less money for any other part of the budget, from education to transportation, economic development. And some of the estimates that the Senate have been looking at would be about a billion dollars, roughly, in additional expenses. In a budget like ours, you would think when you have $70 billion, it's, it's a billion dollars, but it's still a billion dollar cost. 
In the past, you have supported bills that would expand Florida kid care to children of legal immigrants. It would have added about 20,000 more kids to kid care. How is the expansion of a program like that, in your mind, different from the expansion of Medicaid to other populations that are uninsured? The reality is that in the state of Florida, I think no child should go without health care. For me, it's a fundamental right that children should have access to doctors. You know, the difference is that that program has been working, and now the way that I see the Medicaid uh, expansion is it's just a significant, it's a huge cost. It's easier said than done. It's, it's great to say, let's expand Medicaid, but at what cost? And I know people say, well, the cost of human beings making sure that they have health insurance. We all want to make sure that everyone has health insurance. Expanding Medicaid is the right idea, but how do we do it? For God's sakes, when you, when you speak to a lot of folks in Washington, they still have questions. I'm, I'm not saying there's not a reason to not expand it. I'm going to sit back and wait now and, and do my due diligence to see what, uh, what road we go down. The Health Appropriations has been working on this in the Senate, and so has the Health Regulation Committee. And I think, I think we will move in, in that direction. We will move in that direction, meaning you'll start to consider expanding Medicaid? We have to consider it. We have to consider whether we do it or not. I mean, look, it's, it's the law of the land. But, um, you know, I believe in state rights. And uh, if the federal government is throwing this down our throat or shoving this down our throats, I think it's important that we manage it to the best of our ability. That was Florida State Senator Renee Garcia speaking with WLRN's Sammy Mack. It's been about six weeks since tragedy struck in Newtown, Connecticut, leaving 20 small children with their lives cut short. The incident has sparked discussions across the country about how lawmakers can help prevent such an event from ever happening again. Florida's legislature is now stepping in and rethinking how it spends funds for the state's mentally ill. Currently, Florida ranks 49th among other states and the District of Columbia when it comes to funding its mental health system. Bob Sharp is president and CEO of the Florida Florida Council for Community Mental Health. He's one of 10 panelists who recently addressed the state's House Health Families Subcommittee about the system's issues. When Sharp first learned of what happened at Sandy Hook Elementary School, he says he wasn't surprised that the shooter, Adam Lanza, was mentally ill. Often when you have um, shootings, particularly in a school setting or something like that, that involves the adolescent or a young adult male shooter. Um, it invariably involves a mental illness, emotional disorder, personality disorder. Um, something's amiss uh, when you have those kinds of events. An event that Sharp says partially comes from an issue that doesn't get enough attention from lawmakers. And some of that can be accounted for by stigma. Uh, some of it is that people don't believe that uh, the conditions are brain disorders or that we have proven treatment techniques for them or that uh, there's something lacking in the individual and their own will uh, to get out of these situations. So for, the, for, the, for those kinds of reasons, um, behavioral health and substance abuse usually get less resources in the appropriations process and are the most likely to have cuts uh, when you have funding problems. And Sharp says it's sad to see it takes an event like Sandy Hook for lawmakers to address the issue of mental illness. Sandy Hook, as, uh, 
as well as Aurora and Tucson and Columbine, all of those provide an opportunity to talk once again about individuals that uh, aren't being identified uh, early enough, getting earlier treatment, uh, aren't being screened, families don't know how to respond uh, to their children with serious illnesses, Um, they don't want to report their children because of the stigma. Sharp says even when these people try to address the mental issues by seeking help from the state's mental health system, it's difficult to get into the system at all because of funding. He says what some people fail to realize is that improving on the mental health system can have a positive ripple effect in other areas as well. To some extent, we've criminalized mental illness. So many of our individuals who need care, and, and, and it could be accomplished in other settings, are being treated in jails and prisons or end up in those places because of untreated uh, conditions. Uh, there, that they, they make up a disproportionate share of those that are homeless. They have multiple hospital admissions and crisis stabilization unit admissions. When asked where these additional funds would come from, Sharp says the savings allocated from investing in things like preventative measures would outweigh the initial cost of the investment. Additionally, he says removing the boundaries between the mentally ill and the physically ill would also help with finances. The state should give uh, a higher priority to these individuals and not separate the head from the body and treat. Uh, mental illness and addictive disorders like other health disorders and fund them appropriately. Um, We don't have the same debates about treating cancer or neonatal care or strokes or HIV AIDS as we do behavioral health and uh, substance abuse. We need to move on, get past that kind of uh, barrier and start funding these like other health conditions, which means they would have a higher priority and we would find the resources within our state budget uh, to properly fund uh, these programs. He says the House Health Families Subcommittee has other meetings planned where further discussions will be continued. He also says how the state's mental health system is funded is an ongoing conversation he hopes will bring improvements to the lives of Florida's mentally ill. People with distinctive orange badges have been out and about today serving the homeless of Alachua County. The individuals conducting the surveys are working on the part of the Alachua County Coalition for the Homeless and Hungry in an effort to put an accurate figure on the number of homeless individuals in the county and determine the needs of the community. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Chip Scambus reports on the complications involved in undertaking the task. At the Alachua County Housing Authority, a little less than 20 volunteers stand around a large table in an ornate yet folksy conference room, clustered in groups of three or four people. It's 4 a.m. The volunteers are mostly homeless, with a few more from the VA. Moving from cluster to cluster is Teresa Lowe, the woman in charge of the operation. She keeps tabs on the volunteers, making sure to know what areas they're covering. Huh? 
Lowe's the president of the Alachua County Coalition for the Homeless and Hungry and has been for a few years. Her strategy is simple. Employ homeless individuals to go where they and their friends stay, get a count of who's staying there, and then survey the ones who are willing to respond to the survey. The volunteers load up with surveys and little gift bags that coalition member Deidre Ware prepared. This is a gift bag that they're giving out when they go out into the um, tent city or wherever the homeless people are. And they're giving these bags whether they participate in the survey or not. It's just a show of appreciation. They have snacks and a looks like a, a um, handkerchief and a business card. And they're also going to be um, passing out street cards. So if they need any help anywhere or if they need any type of services, the street card will give them that information. Some of the volunteers are paid $10 an hour to give the surveys. This year, Lowe got an overwhelming response from homeless individuals interested in helping out, so many that she had to limit the number of hours a volunteer could work. You know, here's a chance to earn some money. <laughs> so we um, had to cut it down so we can give everybody two hours and that way I don't have to tell people, sorry, we just can't use you at all. So this way the people that came out get some time anyhow. Once the volunteers have all their supplies and know where they're going, they partner up and head out all over town. Bodidley Plaza, just before 5 a.m. About 20 homeless individuals sleep on top of piles of newspapers and beneath bundles of blankets. At dawn, those who are asleep will have to get up and relocate. A few of them are awake already, unable to sleep. Don Small and his fiancée, Dora Stevens, survey one man who's recovering from a recent surgery. Okay, my issue said, uh, have you received any of the following uh, forms of income? Okay, uh, income from work? No. Social Security? No. Okay, uh, help from family and friends? Disabled SSDI? I just stay on my own, basically. Okay, so you're unemployed right now? Yeah. Okay, uh, do you receive food stamp? No. Huh? You know? Any kind of child care, workman's comp? Okay. Are you a veteran? No. Veteran dental folks? Okay. Panhandling? Any other no. forms of trying to make any money? No, I'm just, I'm, I'm just, yeah. <laughs> the early morning volunteers are just the first wave of many more to come. They're targeting the homeless who get up early and go to the labor pools, trying to get temporary work. What do you need right now? Once dawn breaks, surveyors make their ways out to the tent cities. At an encampment in a wooden area along the bike trail a few blocks south of the GRU power plant, large blue tarps cover jury-rigged PVC pipe frames, which are anchored with ropes to surrounding trees. Little huts and pieces of trash litter the landscape. Victoria Morehouse lives in the tent city. She boils water for coffee on a campfire while answering the survey. At one point, she tries to convince other homeless people to complete the survey. Or he can refuse if he don't really have to take it. I mean, you know, but you know, they yeah, just, they, they uh, really the, need account. The less, uh, they need account, the, you know, the, exactly. the more people the less that they know about. you have done, the less money is going to come into the program. Right. Surveyors will be out gathering information until about 11 tonight. The total count of the homeless individuals will be completed before the weekend, and a full report of the data collected will be available on Monday. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Chip Scambus reporting. I'm pretty sure it was, but I'm not aware of it. Okay, just one last question. 
Florida's forests have already seen plenty of prescribed burns this year. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Maggie Schwartzman has been working on the story and joins us live in the studio. So Maggie, you found out that the Florida Park Service is really just hoping to bring greater awareness about how beneficial, the, beneficial these fires are. Yes, Christina. Florida saw 73,000 controlled fires across 2.3 million acres last year, ranking Florida as the nation's leader for prescribed burns. This week, the Florida Park Service is recognizing Prescribed Fire Awareness Week so Florida residents can better understand how these fires work. Prescribed burns are planned to imitate naturally occurring fires in order to help prevent the destruction from wildfires. According to the Florida Park Service, controlled burns are a safe way to ensure Florida's ecosystems stay healthy. Prescribed fire manager for Florida Forest Service, John Sadler, says the controlled burns are carefully planned. Sadler says certain conditions must be met before the burns can be carried out. Basically, a prescribed burn is a, you know, we go out and we look at a piece of property and we determine that, um, you know, proper management tool would be to apply fire to this property. So then we would look at the overstory and the understory and determine uh, when would be the best time of year to burn that, um, what weather conditions would um, produce the most favorable burn, and then once we get those weather conditions and if we got folks available, we'll go out and uh, apply fire to that site to uh, you know, help restore it or maintain its condition. Sadler says most of Florida's ecosystems are dependent on fire for survival. He says the prescribed burns are a safe way to ensure that our ecosystems get the fire that they need. Well, a lot of folks may not realize is that most every ecosystem in Florida is either uh, fire dependent, meaning that it requires fire to maintain its state or its um, fire influenced. Um, you know, a lot of people know we get a lot of lightning in Florida, um, considered lightning capital of North America. And so along with that, you know, you get a lot of fires that occurred naturally over time when these ecosystems were evolving. So, so we come in and we apply fire to these areas to um, you know, apply that natural process that has occurred. There are still some dangers. Um, there are still some dangers considering with these fires. Despite the dangers, Sadler says the prescribed burns are the best way to maintain Florida's ecosystems. Without the controlled burns, our ecosystems would face many dangers. A couple things can happen. Um, you know, you can get an unnaturally large amount of fuel buildup. So when a fire does get in there, it becomes a, a very intense, hard to control wildfire. So putting in regular fire helps keep the fuel levels lower so when fires do get in there, they're not as intense. And um, another thing that could happen is um, they can transition into a different type of ecosystem. So you could lose that particular habitat and it could convert over to uh, um, a different type of habitat. Sadler hopes Prescribed Fire Awareness Week can help bring greater understanding of prescribed burns and show Florida residents the benefits they bring. Prescribed Fire Awareness Week is, you know, obviously to let folks know that we are burning and why we're burning and, you know, to let them know that this is a, you know, a natural process that we're applying to the ecosystem you know, and we're doing that to ensure ecosystem health and reduce the risk of wildfires. And hopefully by, you know, making folks aware of our program, then they'll, they'll understand more why we're doing it and, and appreciate that we're trying to help out uh, Florida's natural areas. 
The Florida Park Service will be promoting Prescribed Fire Awareness Week through February 2nd. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Maggie Schwartzman in Gainesville. And now we'll take a look at a headline making, making headlines around the nation. The lead investigator into a deadly nightclub fire in Brazil says a music group lit a flare designed for outdoor use that set the club ceiling on fire. The police inspector tells reporters that the flare was for outdoor use only and the people who lit them know that. The death toll for the fire in the, the death toll in the fire early Sunday is now put at 324. Thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Christina Loeb. And I'm Nikkel Smith.